Hey, everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to look at the latest science on earthquakes. And then we're going to talk about the most controversial top five we've ever done. And I noticed that my phone was just on. You know, it wasn't even blinking. It was just on. I was like, what is happening? And I looked, and it was one of those, like, my heart dropped when I saw magnitude 7.1 because I didn't see the location yet. People were hoping um, there would be some really obvious precursor that just jumped out right at you. Well, we know that isn't working. Well, we've seen what's inside the North American continent, and that's giving us a whole lot of information about the structure and the evolution of the continent, which is telling us all about the subsurface. That is no lie. I, I have beautiful feet for a man. That, that I will admit to. I think if you take anybody, there's a 25% chance that they could end up in jail or prison later on in life. You never know, man. You could be a bad day away from some serious jail time. I had pork butt on there. <laughs> arguably, pork butt is arguably the funniest name type of meat. I would have to say that. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. In this episode, we're going to be talking about earthquakes, which are all over the news right now. And we have two people that are really at the forefront of research into earthquakes, Dr. Wendy Bohan and Robert Geller. And just a quick housekeeping thing. The way that we did this interview is I asked both of them about their field of expertise. Dr. Wendy Bohan, she's a PhD geologist, and Robert Geller is a seismologist. And in areas that where they overlapped, we just went with the flow of conversation. So if you're hearing one person more than the other, it's just because of that. Your immediate reaction to the earthquakes in California, what do you think? What did you think when you when you found out and heard about those? My first reaction to that was to to sort of think back through the earthquake history and think, this is the largest earthquake in Southern California in a really long time. And then just thinking about all the things that need to happen, wondering where it was, you know, thinking about what fault system it was on, you know, exactly what was going on with the tectonics, and then trying to get together um, consistent messaging. Because even with a magnitude 6.4, it's going to be widely felt. People are going to have a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of anxiety. And so trying to make sure that we're giving people a clear and easy to understand message that can help them understand what they need to do and alleviate that anxiety. Now, <clears throat> when the magnitude 7.1 came on, um, I have two small children and one of them had woken up and, you know, I went to take care of him and I came back to bed and it was about I don't know, maybe one fifteen, two o'clock in the morning. And I noticed that my phone was just on. You know, it wasn't even blinking. It was just on. I was like, what is happening? And I looked, and it was one of those, like, my heart dropped when I saw magnitude 7.1 because I didn't see the location yet. And a magnitude 7.1 underneath metropolitan Los Angeles would be a, a bad story. <clears throat> so... You know, there was that immediate jolt of adrenaline where I was like, oh, my gosh, a magnitude 7.1. Okay. And then, you know, I was just up from there and have basically been up ever since. Well, a lack of surprise. We can never predict earthquakes. Um, that is, we can never precisely say when and where an earthquake will occur. But earthquakes like that in California are very common. When I was an undergraduate student, one of my professors quoted Charles Richter as saying that every four years in California, on average, you would have an earthquake of magnitude six or larger somewhere in California. We know there, there are literally tens of thousands of small earthquakes in California every year. And statistically, Every so often, one of them will be a big one. So for people, and myself included on this, when we hear these numbers like 6.4, 7.1, I understand that obviously 7.1 is higher, but how much stronger of an earthquake are we talking about? Like, how would you explain that to somebody that gets it but doesn't get it? Does that make sense? Yes. And magnitude, the magnitude scale um, is very much not intuitive because it's a logarithmic scale. And so the way that I um, have taught my kids about it, if you imagine you have one strand of spaghetti 
and that's a magnitude five, how hard is it to break one strand? You know, it's pretty easy, right? There's about 32 times more energy for every magnitude step that you go up. So to go from a magnitude five to a magnitude six would be going from one strand of spaghetti to, you know, let's make it easy, 30 strands of spaghetti. And so now how hard is it to break 30 strands of spaghetti? That's a lot harder. That would be a magnitude six. Now imagine we go from a magnitude six to a magnitude seven. Magnitude seven would be about 900 strands of spaghetti. That's about two boxes of spaghetti. So that's kind of what you can think of with the difference in magnitude between those. And another way to look at it, so the magnitude 6.4 earthquake that was the foreshock, the first one that happened, um, was about 11 times smaller than the magnitude 7.1. When I hear this phrase, you know, a seismic wave coming off an earthquake, is that really like energy coming off of it? Or is that just how they describe the earth moving? No, no, it's real honest to God energy. Um, just, it's your basic physics. Um, you, you have, you have a displacement of the earth. So you're, you're, you're deforming the earth from its equilibrium state. And that takes energy to do it. And then the earth tries to bounce back to its equilibrium state. And in doing so, it moves. So that gives you good old-fashioned kinetic energy. You took physics in high school, right? Yeah, but let's assume I did very poorly. So that's kinetic energy. That's potential energy. So elastic waves in the Earth are the same thing. You have potential energy and um, kinetic energy. Good old-fashioned physics. Where So... That energy, though, is going... Where's it going? Well, it spreads out, and it spreads out. And, um, you know, just like if you have a car, if you take your foot off the gas, and the car is on a level surface, it eventually stops because of friction. So, as seismic waves spread out, they get absorbed a little bit at a time by friction. So... They spread out and spread out and um, get um, absorbed by friction, and eventually they die away. So when, when they're talking about a foreshock, is that common to have that? I mean, does it happen with all earthquakes, or is this a, an anomaly? What a great question. No. Foreshocks happen uh, between 5 and 6% of the time, and it's actually kind of just a terminology thing. So when a, an earthquake happens, it makes other earthquakes more likely. So when you have an earthquake that's felt, usually we call that a main shock. And then if there's a larger earthquake after that one in the same general area, then suddenly the the one that was the main shock becomes the foreshock, and then the bigger earthquake becomes the main shock or the biggest one in the sequence. And all of the smaller ones that happen in that same area as the result of those earthquakes we call the aftershocks. Is there a time frame that has to go by, or could you have essentially like a foreshock a month before like have we had the main one yet no one can say for certain but we can say as we move farther away uh in time from that earthquake having another one gets less and less likely in terms of of foreshocks and whether or not we know there's going to be another earthquake we just we just really don't know that because there's nothing that tells us intrinsically in the data or inside the earth that the foreshock is different than the main shock they're all really just earthquakes it's a way for us to keep track when an earthquake happens, it changes the stress inside the ground, and it raises the stress on some faults that are nearby, and it actually lowers the stress on other faults that are nearby. And so generally, for instance, that uh, magnitude 6.4 changed the stress such that it created the conditions that allowed the magnitude 7.1 to happen. But we don't know beforehand whether or not the faults that are now being stressed are stressed enough to actually have another earthquake. So then why wouldn't they just kind of almost continue in perpetuity, like this thing breaks, then along the fault line it sets off this one? Like what what ultimately stops them? That is the, the million-dollar question, right? So um, mag- the magnitude of an earthquake depends upon the length of the fault on which it occurs, and we don't have these faults that just go on forever. So, for instance, a fault like the San Andreas, we talk about the San Andreas a lot because it's one of the longest faults in California, the longest fault, and so it has the potential to create the largest earthquakes. But 
the San Andreas is actually broken up into these different segments that behave somewhat differently and seem to have earthquakes um, kind of contained in these particular areas. And so once the earthquake starts and continues up the fault, and the fault sort of unzips like a zipper, so it starts at the hypocenter, the place inside the earth, and then it moves in one direction or even both directions along a fault plane. Now, if it only moves a little way and stops, then that's going to be a fairly small magnitude earthquake. If it keeps going, as long as it keeps going, it's you know getting bigger and bigger. It's releasing more and more energy. And so there seems to be these things inside the ground, whether it's the fault makes a turn and so it's not as easy for the, the fault to keep uh, breaking, you know, kind of gets stuck in a location. Uh, we call that an asperity. We don't know whether or not it's going to be able to break through those asperities, and sometimes it, it seems to. So that's why there's actually a little bit of <clears throat> uncertainty about what magnitude events could happen on what faults, because we're not certain exactly what stops the earthquake and whether or not it stops it every time. In terms of our knowledge about earthquakes, let's say one is we don't know anything. Ten is we know absolutely everything. Where do you think we are right now? Uh, that's a really hard one. I'd say we're probably at a five. We understand a lot about how the Earth works. We understand a lot about the systems that we're working with. But we aren't able to actually recreate those very well in the laboratory. Um, we're, the Earth is also a really, really complicated system. So it's not just you know the faults themselves that we're trying to deal with. It's all of the things that go into the Earth and all of the different perturbations. And so there is an awful lot for us to learn we're learning more and more and and more quickly because we have all these new seismic instruments. The more data we have, the better we can see what's happening under the ground during these earthquakes, which is giving us a whole lot of information about what happens during the process of the earthquake, what happens after the earthquake, and how the earth is actually moving. GPS instruments help with that as well. How, how much of this can we really study? Because we can't really get down there, right? I mean, it's... Can we really? Can we ever really figure out what's going on? Is it possible? Yes, I think so. I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full. So <laughs> we've actually drilled down into the San Andreas Fault to try and look at the place where earthquakes start. Especially, it's an area that has a lot of uh, micro events. That was called uh, the San Andreas Fault Observatory at depth, and we have. Um, we had a new seismic array, actually, that went across the United States. It was a system of 400 seismometers that started on the West Coast. Each seismometer was left in the ground for about two years, and then they would be picked up and moved to another location further east. And that allowed us to view the subsurface of the North American continent in an exquisite amount of detail. And so sort of like dragging a, an ultrasound wand across a pregnant belly so you can see the baby, well, we've seen what's inside the North American continent. And that's giving us a whole lot of information about the structure and the evolution of the continent, which is telling us all about the subsurface. So between what we know at the surface of the Earth and what we can actually um, examine objectively, we have all of these geophysical techniques that allow us to kind of peer down inside the Earth. And that project was actually called EarthScope. You know, a telescope to look at the sky, you have a microscope to look at things that are really small, and we used this array of geophysical instruments to look inside the Earth for Earthscope. When you look at the earthquake in California and just, I guess, the, you know, the places that that measured, is the Earth well-suited for earthquakes in that area, or do we have an advantage that, like, yeah, there's the fault there, but the rock isn't really great and it kind of limits it? That's a, that's a hard question to answer. So... Um, the area where the earthquakes occurred is in a region called the Eastern California Shear Zone. Uh, and it's accommodating, it seems to be about 25% of the motion between the North American plate and the Pacific plate. And when we do, you know, draw maps, we kind of just say generally, oh, the San Andreas is the boundary between those plates. But in reality, it's a very wide boundary. And there's a lot of faults that are involved in taking up the stress and the strain as these giant tectonic plates are moving around. The Eastern California shear zone is really interesting because there's lots and lots of faults there, but none of them seem to be really very long, and they're not all attached to each other. So as faults get older and evolve, they tend to get more straight, and all of these little pieces of faults kind of come together and make a more coherent system. 
And out there in the Mojave Desert, there's a lot of these faults kind of all over the place, and they're in somewhat different orientations. So it's a really interesting area. Now, it is also cool about the crust in California and how it transmits the seismic waves um, because the, the crust is really broken up because of all those faults. And so the seismic waves don't actually travel very well. When you have earthquakes in the Midwest or earthquakes on the East Coast, even if they're a smaller magnitude, they tend to be felt over a much broader distance just because of the local um, ground and soil conditions in the Midwest and on the East Coast. When you when you talk about magnitudes, is it how strong it is or is it where it is that's going to be like the biggest threat to us? That's a, It's both those things. So the magnitude... There's two different things I'd like to talk about. One is magnitude and the other is intensities. So every earthquake has one magnitude. That's the amount of energy that it released or how kind of how big it was. And each earthquake has many different intensities. And intensity is the shaking that is felt. So what you're going to feel depends on the magnitude of the earthquake, how far away you are from the earthquake, and the type of uh, rock and soil that you're on. And so all of those play into what you're going to experience during the earthquake itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I know it does. It's like it's the the magnitude is essentially right where it happens, right? And then the intensity dictates like how much this person standing in this area gets hit and this person in that area gets hit. Is that is that the dumbed down version of it, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> Not dumbed down. It's just, you know, the, the common language version, I guess. It's Yeah, the magnitude is the energy that's released, and we feel the, the waves from the earthquake is shaking, right? And so magnitude is just kind of the measure, like, a you know, you talk about like a bomb and the size of the bomb, the amount of joules that it's released, or a light bulb, you know, a 40-watt light bulb and a 100-watt light bulb. That would be like the magnitude. The intensity, if we're talking about the light bulb, would be, if you have the light in the middle of the room and you're standing in the corner, you're not going to get as much light as if you're standing right under the light bulb. That makes sense. I mean, in terms of prediction, like where are we with prediction? I've, I've gone back and I've studied efforts at earthquake prediction over the last 140 years. And um, basically, they've been pretty empirical. People were hoping um, there would be some really obvious precursor that just jumped out right at you. If, if you went back and looked at the data, and then you could say, hey, the next time we see a signal like that, there's going to be a quake. Well, we know that isn't working. So it's very unlikely that um, we'll have something like that in the next, say, five years or 10 years or 20 years. So that I can be pretty definite about. It's, it's hopeless. But as for a hundred years from now, well, I'm not going to be around to take the hit if I'm wrong. But I think earthquakes are so complicated, um, we're never going to be able to predict them. Rather like the weather, we don't predict earthquakes. You know, it would be, let's, let's use the weather as an example. You'd never really say, um, we predict rain today. You say, you know, there's an 80% chance of rain or there's a 15% chance of rain because you can't always really be positive unless it's actually raining. We do earthquakes the same way, but on a longer time frame because no one can actually predict with any certainty the location and exact magnitude of an earthquake. We can tell you where they're likely to happen. We can tell you about how big they usually are in that area. And we can tell you, you know, other factors like that. But we cannot say things like two o'clock on Tuesday, magnitude six. That's just not how it works. What we can say is, especially after an earthquake like this with an aftershock sequence, we're likely to have felt earthquakes. We're likely, you know, right now I think there's a one in 100 percent chance or one in 100 chance that there will be a larger event. So very unlikely, but still statistically possible. What do you think that is about us as a society that when I hear one in 100, I know that mentally that is very small. But I'm also like, oh, my gosh, we're doomed at the same time. <laughs> I, think, I think that's just human nature. We like to have patterns. We like to have control of things. I mean, goodness sake, we make patterns out of the stars so that we can understand what's happening. We don't like the inherent unpredictability of earthquakes or other things that we can't control and that we can't uh, figure out when exactly they're going to happen. 
it's scary. I get it. I've been in earthquakes. They can be really terrifying. And so we just want to make sure that, that people understand when we say, you know, there's a very small chance that we really mean it's possible. Be ready, but, you know, don't lose sleep over it. If we say, you know, there's a 50% chance of experiencing, uh, like in this event, there's likely to be a few more felt earthquakes at least, you're likely to experience earthquake shaking. We still want people to know that that's a possibility and be prepared for that, both physically and emotionally. Because, man, these poor people out in Ridgecrest, it's it's been a long couple of days for them. They're feeling a lot of events. They've got families and kids, and it's, it's really psychologically uh, hard to live through those situations. So... In terms of like the way that we design structures and our preparedness in that sense, do we do we kind of got this or do we still have a long way to go? There's always room for improvement. <laughs> uh, right now, building codes are meant to save lives. You know, that's the number one priority is saving people's lives. It would be nice if we could get to the to the point where we are designing and building structures that are designed to save lives and also to save property. Because resilience is really important when we're talking about um, hazards. So you can have an earthquake and a lot of people can live, but if your whole city is destroyed, that's not going to make it easy for those people to recover. You know, our schools, our businesses, our friends, our homes, they're all in these places that have hazards. In California, it's a lot of earthquake hazards. We have to make sure that we're actually building to withstand those hazards, to save people, and then to also have a city or town to come home to and to live in, to work in, you know, once the earthquake is over. In, I mean, since you've been in one, like, what is the reality of an earthquake? Like, what, you're just kind of, I've never experienced it. You just moved around, or I don't, like, what happens? It's like being on a boat where you can't control what's happening underneath of you. And so the earthquake is moving you not just sideways, but also up and down and back and forth. And it, a lot of people will describe the long period shaking, or if you're far away, that people will say it's like a rolling earthquake because the long period waves go farther than the sort of jerky short period waves. So it, it really does feel like being on a boat, um, except you weren't expecting it, so it can be really frightening things around you are really loud that's one of the things i i think doesn't get translated a lot car alarms start going off dogs start barking the walls can be creaking you know all of your dishes are are you know clanking and making noise things may start to fall and break so it's really overwhelming to all of your senses which is why it's so important to do earthquake drills so that your body kind of has this response even if your mind is a little bit paralyzed with fear you know what to do you've already gone through this you know it's kind of just built a built-in reaction to drop cover and hold on is is there anything that we're doing that's making them worse uh not in not in california and not in a broad sense. So tectonic earthquakes, particularly along the plate boundaries like in California, are the result of the motion of the tectonic plates. Those are huge forces. There are some places, like in Oklahoma, uh, where human activity is causing earthquakes. Um, I'm sure you've heard of fracking. The real term is hydraulic fracturing. That does create some small earthquakes. The bigger culprit is called wastewater injection, where they take the water that came out of these fracking activities and they put it back into the ground. And that can cause the faults uh, to get lubricated and to have earthquakes in places that you wouldn't normally expect earthquakes. Um, the, but, you know, it's, it's being uh, worked on and the scientists are working along with uh, the oil industry and others. And I think that, you know, hopefully we're working towards a solution for that. Is that, but can those cause like, can those cause big ones or are those, you know, three, fours, that kind of stuff? Uh, there's been a magnitude 5.8 that, that I believe was the result of wastewater injection. But, you know, let's talk for just a second about hazard and risk. A three or a four in Oklahoma can still do damage if it's close enough to the surface. Because people in Oklahoma, you know, what's their hazard? Tornadoes. Yeah. They're not prepared for earthquakes. So you have a population that's not really... Uh, prepared for that hazard. They don't know what to do when that hazard happens. And the structures there aren't designed to meet that particular hazard. They're designed for other hazards. And so in this case, you don't have a lot of um, earthquake hazard out there, or you didn't used to, but you have a high risk because if it happens, nobody's ready. What area 
and this could be worldwide or in the United States, what area are you most worried about? Every so often in California um, or Japan, you have buildings that fall down in an earthquake. But in your less economically developed countries, you, you have much less safe buildings. The combination of unsafe buildings and a quake under the city um, is what should keep you up at night. In California or elsewhere in the western U.S., we have all these high-rise high buildings, you know, 50 and 60-story skyscrapers. And they, they've been designed to meet certain standards, but we really don't know whether those standards are sufficient. And they've never been tested by a really big earthquake. So if you have an earthquake comparable to the 1906 earthquake, um, in San Francisco. What's going to happen to all those high-rise buildings in San Francisco? Well, no one knows for sure that um, the people who designed them designed them to what they think is an adequate safety level. But as Tom points out, we don't know for sure. We, we won't know until um, the shaking starts and then stops. So I, th I think that's something to be concerned about? Uh, that's a, a hard question. I think that um, for me it's about the intersection of you know very populated areas with potential hazards. The Pacific Northwest uh, is near and dear to my heart. It's a beautiful region. I have friends and family there and uh, they have a lot of different hazards, volcano hazards. They have you know the Cascadia subduction zone which is obviously very hazardous. So that would be uh, probably in the United States, that would be the one that I would be the most concerned about. Can they set off volcanoes? Sometimes. But uh, not not very often. I mean, it could happen, but it's not, there's not like a direct link. Like you throw a ball up in the air, it comes down kind of a link. No, more often what happens is that you get earthquakes associated with volcanic activity. So as magma is moving up towards the surface, it's breaking and cracking the rocks as it goes and we detect that because those are earthquakes it's called a uh, harmonic tremor it's a little special subcategory of earthquakes and you can track uh, the hypocenter or the place where those earthquakes are occurring and if it's getting closer and closer to the surface that's one of the ways that volcanologists can uh, figure out whether or not they think an eruption might be likely what area do you think gets too much attention yellowstone oh my gosh you guys there's a lot of like legitimate things to worry about. Cascadia subduction zone, you know, climate change. Let's stop talking about Yellowstone. It's super cool, but I am telling you, I lose zero sleep over Yellowstone. You know, we had a volcanologist on a couple of weeks ago, and she said the exact same thing. Like, Yellowstone <laughs> is not, don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's, we get a lot of, it gets a lot of press. Because it's like the Kim Kardashian of volcanoes, you know. But you're not really sure what exactly it's doing. It's had a lot of eruptions in the past. But we know a lot about the subsurface. There's a ton of instruments out there. We have GPS instruments. We have strain meters. We have gas. Everything. Everything is out there. All the scientists study it. It's such an amazing place. It is not the biggest concern. Really. Well, yeah. I, I think in California, you have this phrase... The big one. And everyone is always talking about, quote-unquote, the big one. And the implication of that is that one particular fault is known to be extremely dangerous. And um, I, would feel, I would feel much happier if we worried about every place rather than just one particular place. Because everywhere you have a fault in the earth, there, there have been large earthquakes on that fault in the recent past, geologically speaking. And now, we human beings, our average lifespan is maybe 80 years. Um, but geological history goes back millions of years. So um, if we have, we have faults all over, say, California, that, that have slipped... Um, in the last hundred thousand years or the last million years. And um, we can't write off any of them. Is, 
Is there any worry in your mind, though, that we're paying so much attention to this, the, the certain places that we could completely miss the real problem? Like, do you feel at all like that might be happening? Um, yes. With earthquakes in particular, people get very focused on the big one without recognizing that there are hundreds of faults in California that can cause damage if they are to have an earthquake. And so, though, you know, we're much more likely to have earthquakes on those faults than we are to have the big one at any one time. Sort of like Northridge. Northridge caused a lot of damage, but that was not the big one. So we need to be uh, thinking about things outside of just that one earthquake. We need to make sure that people understand that, you know, magnitude fives, magnitude sixes, these can be damaging earthquakes. We need to be prepared for those. And there are steps that you can take to prepare yourself. You know, you can make sure your house is strapped to the foundation. Make sure your water heater is strapped down. Make sure that your bookcases and other things are strapped to the wall. Uh, Take the heavier objects off of the top shelves. Uh, Don't put a mirror over your bed so that it could fall and brain you in the middle of the night. You know, make sure you have an earthquake plan. Make sure that you have, you know, food and water for yourself and for your pets. Pets are part of your family. So, you know, there's ways that you can actually make sure that you are as prepared as you can possibly be, not just to survive the earthquake, but to thrive afterwards. Now, you do a lot of stuff with women in science, right? What's going on with that? Yes. So um, I am on the leadership board and I'm the global communications manager for 500 women scientists. You know, we, there's a lot of um, global issues. We have a lot of things that we need to be working on and we need all hands on deck. We need to make sure that we're getting a variety of perspectives. And as much as scientists like to say that they're 100% objective, you know, we bring ourselves to our science. People are passionate about their science, and our experiences shape who we are and how we do our science. And, of course, our science is still objective. We do our science as rigorously as possible. But it's important to have diverse perspectives in the scientific sphere and those voices in the community so that we can make sure we're looking at all of these global problems um, in the best possible way. Do you think that, are we getting better about that? Or are we just kind of status quo, so to speak, about getting more, more women involved in STEM careers? I think it's getting better. I'm hopeful that it's getting better. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work. Women are are going into STEM at, at record rates but we're not seeing a lot of women in leadership positions. Um, if you look in the you know academic world, you have women that are going in and getting their PhDs, but then they're leaving the academy for some reason or another. And I, you know, frankly, I would argue that that's not a leaky pipeline. You know, they're taking those those scientific skills and the learning that they got, and they're taking it into different sectors, whether it's government or nonprofit or policy or education. You know, they're still using those skills, whether they're men or women. Are you ready for the hard questions? Sure. Hit me. What is the best movie about an earthquake? Uh, I like The Rock, so I'm going to have to say San Andreas. But just know that the whole thing is like totally fiction. Like start to finish, every bit of it, totally not going to happen. That's all. pretty much all the questions I had. Is there anything else you think we missed or anything else you'd like to add anything you got coming up uh yeah i have one thing so um if you ever do feel earthquake shaking the thing to do is drop down take cover underneath a sturdy object and hold on because that table or whatever you're underneath could actually jolt away what we're trying to do is make sure that nothing falls on you in the united states our building codes are pretty good especially if you're in you know a single family home that's wood framed and has a regular roof So we want to make sure that you don't get hurt by things falling on you. If you're inside, stay inside. If you're outside, stay outside. If you are outside, stay away from power lines. Stay away from the edges of buildings. Stay away from anything that could fall on you. Nobody's ever been shaken to death in an earthquake. It's always the result of something else that's happening, whether it's something falling on them, you know, having problems with a a structure, having, you know, landsliding, things like that. So that's what you need to be aware of. Don't be scared. Be prepared. I want to thank both Wendy and Robert for joining us. If you want to connect with them, we have linked to them on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. They have a really fascinating perspective 
Because there's always the images and the information that you get from the media. And I think that as you get farther away from the actual event, that becomes more and more misleading about what's actually happening. Their social media accounts, their websites are great sources of information about the real science behind what's going on. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. And I have to admit that last episode, he actually did a really good job. He said that he was going to have a segment. He had a segment. He kept it nice. He did a good job of it. The real question is, is he going to be able to continue to do this? Because historically speaking, he has not been successful in doing that. So let's find out. I'm in a building that has no windows, concrete walls. Doing my best here. Are you in prison? <laughs> Probably close enough. You know, you, you never know, I suppose. You think that eventually you will end up in prison or in jail for a, a decent amount of time? No, I, I don't think so. I actually have this, this motto, which I probably shouldn't say out loud. But, you know, if, if I ever do something that warrants, you know, serious jail time... I, I'm not entirely sure that I would I would want to go to jail. I mean, you've been in a jail, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to go to jail. Well, that's what I, that's what I'm saying. I I don't think I would go to jail. What do I you think? I would just become some lawless addict who just goes out in a glory. Oh, you would go like Bonnie and Clyde kind of style. Yeah. Now, now I don't want people to think that that means that I would like you know shoot and kill police officers. However, like if I'm some badass, you know, criminal and I've done things to where I know I'm either going away forever or, you know, there's just no coming back from. I mean, I, I might as well go out like, you know, like OJ style. Well, OJ didn't go out. He's still alive. <laughs> well, you know, what? <laughs> you're right. And he's actually well, he might he is in jail now, right? No, no he's, he's out. out. So he's if you went out OJ style, which would mean you would get caught. And eventually go to jail and then get out a certain amount of time later. That's going out OJ style. I was really just speaking on behalf of, like, you know, driving down a major highway in a Ford Bronco and everyone knows it's me kind of thing. So what you're saying is that if you were ever in a situation where you thought you might go to prison, you wouldn't harm anybody, but you would just try to go on the run for as long as you could? Like, I would do my best to, like, leave the country and start a new life, you know what I mean? Okay, I respect that. I would never want to go to prison. That's the end of my story. Do you think, though, that you will eventually end up? I mean, what are the chances right now, if you were to guess, what are the chances that you would end up in jail or prison at some point in the rest of your life? I mean, I would say less than 3%. I think that's awfully low. I think if you take anybody, there's a 25% chance that they could end up in jail or prison later on in life. Now, when you say jail, are you talking about like a, even a DUI? Let's let I feel like that's kind of that that skews it too much. Let's leave that out. But I feel like people you never know, man. You could be a bad day away from some serious jail time. I mean, do you see yourself in in, in prison soon or are you are you like admitting to something on this podcast? No, no, I'm not I'm not admitting to anything, but I could just would I be surprised if I ended up in jail? Not really. I mean, I'm not even doing anything illegal, but I just wouldn't really be that surprised if like, hey, you know, you had a bad day and you're really stressed out and somebody pisses you off and you run their car off the road. Like I wouldn't, I'm not ruling that out. I just think that anybody has a 20, anybody, no matter who you are, you've got a 25% chance that you could end up in jail or prison. Like you could just have a bad day. Yeah, I think the older you get, the less you just give a shit. If that makes any sense. So I, I think a lot of people's ambitions just go out the window. So even if they wanted to commit a crime, they'd rather just sit at home and, you know, wilt, wilt away, so to speak. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I could see myself at 70, like I'm driving, somebody pisses me off, <laughs> and I'm just backing up. Like, you know what? I'm 70. I got good insurance. Screw it. And I'll just back up. And maybe that would be considered like aggravated assault, and I go to prison. I could totally see that happening. Do you feel like your life would be easier or harder if you if you were dumber? Say 15 IQ points. You're 15 IQ points dumber. Is your life easier or harder? I would say that if you take anybody and made them 15 IQ points dumber, uh, life would be easier in many aspects. Like, if I was dumber, I wouldn't think as much. And then 
I would just do things. They might be dumb, but at least I, I would just do them and not think about them. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree that most people would probably be happier if they were dumber. But don't you think, though, wouldn't your life become more complicated because you were stupider? Like, you would go out and buy a ton of fireworks. You would take out that giant loan. You would buy a Ford Mustang with a V8 in it and think that's a good family car. Like, you would do these dumb things. Well, I think with a (laughs) – this is going to sound really bad. I think with a level of dumbness comes just like the fuck it attitude. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's fuck it as opposed to you just don't know. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Fuck it. I, I, you know, you don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, like if I, if, if you were to go buy an $80,000 car, like you could, you don't care about the payments. You don't care that you just spent your life savings. You're just happy to be in the car. You're just happy to be zipping around town in your Ford Mustang GT. Yeah. Like, you're too dumb to realize that like you're not going to have any money to pay your mortgage and like you know or even food probably but you're happy as shit because you're in your new car that you just bought i mean those fireworks were big who cares if i can't pay rent did you see that explosion (laughs) i mean sure you're gonna call your you know friend three weeks from the time you wake up in the hospital asking if you saw that badass firework that blew up in your in your hand you know but hey, you gave him a great show. <laughs> Who gives a shit? That's fucking awesome. Listen, can we talk about how I how I crushed you again in the Facebook top five poll? I don't even remember what it is. It was the Mario Kart, and I killed you. I had seventy seven percent of the vote. I don't understand why that was. I mean, my choices weren't. Here's the thing, though, is that I went with. I actually put some thought into it and went with the who I really thought was the best characters. You went with the easy stuff. I mean, I, I went with the top five characters. However, we did receive some backlash from different folks in the social media world uh, that both of our lists don't count because we didn't have a single female character on the list. See, I I do kind of think that's actually interesting because there's two things there, right? There's one, do we not have female characters on there because we're not being expansive enough and trying out different characters? Or do we not have female characters on there because the characters just aren't that good? Uh, for me, it's just because they, they weren't in my top five. It's not anything else. I mean, I think I mentioned Peach as a, you know, an honorable mention, but like, that's it. Like, there's nobody else. More importantly, do you have, are you ready to go? Do you have your segment music? Are you ready? Once again, I don't have music. I can improv some music if you want. Okay, yeah. I don't have a device. Like, I guess I can have like a radio next to me. Why don't you, know? you just beatbox? And, uh, that's my sig out as the guitar at the end. Okay. So you know the rules. You know the rules. No, I don't. No back talking. Just answer the question. You have to pick one regardless. Number right? one, no one knows the rules. You just don't say you know the rules when you haven't established any rules before. But let's just move on. I mean, I, I said them last podcast. I'll have to go back, which was a fantastic podcast, by the way. For anyone who is a cook or likes to cook, that dude knew his shit. Yeah, it was kind of actually ridiculous. Like, he really was on top of it. Malcolm Reed, How to Barbecue Right, episode 52, if anybody wants to listen. It was released over the 4th of July, so maybe people might have missed it. But, it, like, if you really like to cook... And or like to eat. Nope. It was it was worth it. It was worth it. Go ahead with your rules that you whatever. So uh, the first one is the show Stranger Things or any other TV show. I'd have to go any other TV show. I like Stranger Things, but I mean, if you're going to stack the deck that much, it becomes a ridiculous question. And I have to go any other TV show. Have you watched any of it? I, I watched the first season. It's really weird to watch the the third season. I personally se- don't understand the hype. Have you? But you haven't seen the latest season, though. No, I have not. It's really weird to see them because they suddenly like really grew up, and now it's like, oh, this is going to lose all its momentum. It's just weird to look at them because now they're adults, not adults, but now they don't they don't look like cute kids anymore. Like, oh, now you're a shitty teen. <laughs> so basically, there was like no middle ground. They just went from being little kids to 
grown ass teenagers. Well, I'm sure that they hit there. I don't know how old they are, but it looks like they hit puberty and really started to change. Do you remember the time you hit puberty and you went from four foot three to four foot nine? Do you? What was puberty like for John Shaw? Uh, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't really remember it a whole lot. It was, uh, it was fine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get like the normal acne or you know emotional issues. I just, I don't know. I, I, it was fine. I guess I don't really wasn't terrible. Was yours terrible? No, I don't. All I remember is I really wanted to be an X Man, and I wished that I would be an X Man when I hit thirteen. And I didn't turn into an X-Man, and I was pretty disappointed about that. But other than that, that's really the only thing I remember about puberty. Is that why you still wear around the X-Man underwear? Heck yeah, man. I rock Wolverine on the front and the back. All right. uh, Number two, uh, you have to sign off or say goodbye to somebody, but you have to say either bye-bye or bye-bye. What are you going with? Oh, shit. Oh, that might be your best one yet. Bye-bye, bye-bye, or bye-bye? Yeah. I guess I'd go bye-bye. Like B-A-H-B-Y-E? Yeah, I guess I'd uh, go with that one. They both are brutal. I mean, I I, I almost like if I know I'm talking to somebody and they're going to say either one of those, I almost just want to hang up before they say goodbye. Yeah, bye-bye is more like kind of jokey. If somebody's going like, bye-bye, that's... Get the fuck out of here. That's a tough one. All right. And then the last one was, uh, and it's going to make no sense to you if you haven't seen the uh, the articles, but uh, either the, you have to choose once again, either the Betsy Ross 4th of July shoes that came out by Nike or 4th of July flip-flops. I haven't, I don't know enough about it. I haven't seen them. But I would, I mean, okay. that seems to be, if I'm going to, I would steer away from controversy and probably just go flip-flops. I don't see what the problem with flip-flops is. Now, are, now for flip-flops, are you doing like the thick, the thick ones with like the, no. the fat band? No, get the fuck out of here. I go with a $2 Walmart special. I'm not paying, <laughs> I am not paying more than six ninety nine for a pair of flip-flops. <laughs> oh, I this doesn't surprise you. I think I've owned one pair of flip-flops in my entire life. And you are a man who has been complimented on his feet several times apparently. That's I that is no lie. I I have beautiful feet for a man. That that I will admit to. Still no picture though. We're still waiting on the picture. Yeah, well, all uh, the, all the foot <laughs> fetish listeners we all the foot fetish listeners we picked up are still waiting. <laughs> Where are they at, Sweden? Uh, we got some in Denmark. And just for the audience, I work as an anchor for a broadcast television station. I have been asked for pictures of my feet, and it is awkward every time. Well, anyways, moving on. Uh, so uh, it kind of got lost, I think, in the 4th of July holiday, but uh, we do have a winner. And the fictional dog and fictional cat uh, polls. I'm not even familiar with that. What do you mean you're not familiar with it? What poll? You know that we've been running polls the last month and a half, right? The fictional cat versus fictional dog tournament. I haven't seen or heard anything about it. (laughs) Well, that's good to know that you pay attention to the Twitter feed. Uh, Well, with over 300 votes casted, uh, Scooby-Doo crushed Garfield by... A uh, wide margin, seventy to thirty, to uh, take the throne this year. So Scooby Doo is a top fictional dog or cat character, uh, according to our listeners. I don't. I was just trying to see if I could set you off into a rage. It didn't really work. I don't have a problem with Scooby Doo <laughs> taking the overall title, but Garfield would have been bullshit. There's no reason Garfield should have been the top fictional character, dog or cat. I mean, listen, it, it was just the underdog, you know it. It got there, and then, of course, it got its ass whipped by clearly the heavier favorites. So. Yeah, Scooby-Doo should have won that one. Very very scientific, well, you know, real, I'm really proud of you for using your time wisely on that. Do you have another segment? I don't remember because you started so many, and now I got lost. No, there's only two of them. Well, and what, so do you have music for the new social media one, or what are you doing? I mean, it's 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 kind of the similar to the the, the other segment, you know. It, let let me give the intro here. Ready? Okay, okay, can you make it? Can you start out a little bit slow and then speed it up, like build excitement? I really want you to build excitement. 
Like with like the music, you mean? No. I don't know. I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, we were talking about the music, and then you said with the music. Yeah, with the music. I once again, I'm confused. See, this is where you you become a, a dick, and I don't know. I don't know if you're being serious or joking. Build excitement with the music. Dun 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 ha ha na na okay i mean you 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 had it and you've lost it so many times and during that it's like oh getting good oh getting bad Ooh, getting good oh getting bad i think you ended on a low note but go ahead let's let's move on anyway so uh the quote of the week goes to tmqsr who uh, quoted uh, our poll, our uh, fictional cat versus fictional dogs poll, and said that uh, he always wondered what the Scooby-Doo gang did in the back of their van. Must have been smoking some dubs, you know? That's a pr- That was actually really good. I thought that he brought up an even better question of exactly, were they getting paid for this? Like, where did they live? Where did Scooby-Doo and the gang live? In the van? Or did they go to their houses? You didn't know they were in a van down by the river. Okay, is that the is that the only social media thing you have, or do you have other ones? No, no, no. And then Corey Ray's, uh, I believe it was uh, our poll about uh, you know what do people enjoy most about fireworks or the Fourth of July rather, and uh, overwhelmingly, which was surprising to me, thirty three percent of people, our faithful listeners, said that their favorite part of the holiday was uh, Idiots with Fireworks. Oh, yeah. I don't know why that's surprising. Like, I love watching somebody about to blow their hand off. Like, oh, <laughs> look at this idiot. He's about well, to hurt himself. So Corey had posted, and I didn't really understand this. I had to think about it. I know that surprises you. But uh, he said that's why he stays up uh, until 2 a.m. every 4th of July. To see, who's, to see who got injured? Yeah. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. I mean, I didn't hear about any really bad injuries this 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 year, but I mean, there's always next year. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Anything else? Uh, and then there was, um, I'm not even sure how to say this person's name, so I'm going to screw it up uh, horribly. But uh, the Yashi, the Lashi, I'm not sure, but on Instagram posted that uh, the this episode that we just did with the uh, the barbecue master was by far our best episode. So a little a little kudos to us. Oh. Oh, hey. Okay. Let me talk about this really quickly because we've been talking about this for a while, about coming up with something that we're going to do in the near year, like a giveaway. And what I want to do is I want to, starting next episode, each of us will say the dumbest thing that we did that week. And then we'll put it out to the listeners. And whoever has the dumbest thing, like whoever wins with the dumbest thing of the week, we're going to send you a $10 gift card. A <laughs> $10 gift card to where? I don't know. The internet? <laughs> All right. Fair enough. I, I look, I think that stupidity in some cases should be rewarded. Okay. <laughs> are you ready to do our, our top five? I am. And it's sentimental to me because... Well, it was the first one we ever did. Yeah. And it's probably the one we've been made fun of the most for. So the first, very first episode, which I think was like eight minutes long that John and I did, we did, (laughs) no, you didn't really do it necessarily as I went through top 10 meets and then just got your feedback. So our top five is a sentimental one like John mentioned. We're going to do a repeat of the very first episode because this is our year anniversary and we're going to do a real version of top five meats. So what do you got? What's your number five best meat? So my number five, my only seafood I got on here. Seafood is not a meat. It's fish. It's it's debatable. No, it's, it's not. It's a, it's, it's a debate. No, it's not. It's not a debate. a debate. Okay. What, what is it? Lobster. Oh, wait a minute. Shit. I <laughs> feel like it's seafood, though. I don't know why a fish wouldn't because it's fish meat. But I don't think of that as a traditional meat. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna roll the dice and put it out there, then go for it. I mean, you. I knew you were gonna say that because I, I actually argued against myself. So I did some research, and apparently, it's one of the most highly debated 
questions in science in terms of like, you know, eating healthy and yada, yada dieting is like, is fish meat. So like vegetarians, are they, have they really been eating meat this entire time? I guess the only thing that, I mean, what qualifies something as a meat? Is there a scientific definition or does somebody just say, no, that's, that's meat, that's fish? Right. Right. Cause I, I mean, I, I don't think there is a scientific definition of, of, of meat. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Uh, my number five is lamb. Okay. Uh, I'm not too well versed on lamb, but all right. I kind of ran out, honestly, to get to number five, and I'm not going to go with like venison or elk or bison or something like that. It's just not as good as a good gyro or a gyro or a hero, yeah, however you pronounce think it. It's a gyro, but no big deal. Are you sure it's a gyro? Yeah, I hope that you get lit up for saying gyro. I always call it a gyro. <laughs> I, I hope to God that this episode is the episode that people finally agree with me on how ridiculous you are. I'm going to edit that so it just says, I finally agree <laughs> with me. What's your, what's your number four? I have a, it's, it's, it's a plain Jane, but a, a hamburger. Okay. Hamburger is that beef? What is it? You're yeah, going... I mean ground beef. Uh, but I mean, if I'm getting if I'm getting picky, you know, uh, like sirloin burgers are really good, like a higher cut, you know. Or uh, but you know. Okay, you well we're doing, fine. but we're doing types of meat, and you're putting yeah. in ground. You're going hamburger. That's not a type of meat. That's a cut. I don't really know. Let's just move on. And ground, uh, ground beef is ground beef is a kind of meat. Yeah, well, beef. It's beef. It's yeah, but you just said we're going types of 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 meat. That's a cut, right? I guess, I guess we weren't like getting if we're excluding specialities or or separate cuts. Then I'm fucked because my number one is a specific cut of beef. Yeah, see, there's where I feel like you cheated because I know what your number one is going to be, but you've already said it twice. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, I guess I'm, I guess my list is null, but I still want to say it anyways. Okay, fine. My number four is hot dog. <laughs> but that's that's a kind of beef. No, not necessarily. Who the fuck knows what's in a hot dog? I feel like a hot dog. I feel like a hot dog. You can't put it as one type of meat because it could kind of be anything. I feel like it's its own separate category. Well, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll parlay you on that one because my number three is sausage. Okay. Is, is, is sausage just like a classy hot dog? <laughs> I actually think it's probably like a classy hot dog's fat, ugly brother. You're going to put hot dog above sausage? In, in terms of like etiquette, yeah, for sure. You think a hot dog is classier than sausage? Yeah, I do. Why? Um, I can't believe I'm gonna. I'm trying to argue this point uh, because a a hot dog is skinny and it, it can be made. You know, you can put like nice little things on it. You can put some mustard, some ketchup. You can wrap it in a nice bun. A sausage is just a big hunking, you know, half pound stick of meat. I don't know. I always, I have always envisioned sausages being classier than hot dog. <laughs> so Nick, when when you eat your sausage, do you like to eat it whole or do you like to nibble on it? No, no. I'm going to take the whole thing, the whole sausage in my mouth as much as I can. You can't look. When I get to sausage, I want to take it deep. I want to take it hard. <laughs> and you better believe I'm not spitting anything back up. <laughs> Gag reflex gone out the window, I see. All right. Was that your number three or was that your number four? That's my number three. Okay, my number three is chicken. Specifically, okay. specifically, I'm going to go chicken thigh above chicken wing. I think that there's, they're pretty close, but I think chicken thigh is better than chicken wing. Oh, see, if I – so my number two is chicken. Okay. But I would put – I mean, the wing is by far the number one, followed by the breast for me. You're going to go thigh after breast? I actually probably would. I wouldn't even have, like, I don't even know what other parts. To, like, I would put the chicken feet above the chicken thigh. Why? 
The thigh's great. I'm I'm not I'm not a big fan of chicken thighs. But I don't understand that because you would like dark meat. If you like the wing, that's the dark meat. Why would you go over the second biggest, the first biggest source of the dark meat? <laughs> I feel like you're setting me up for a bad joke here. However, um, I'm just not a big fan. A couple of times I've had them, I just I haven't, I, I haven't enjoyed it. I don't know what the fuck you're doing then. My number two is beef. <laughs> that's such, I mean, that's such a generic... That's a type of meat. That's what we were supposed to do, not get really specific. I like T-bone steak. I like porterhouse steak. I like ground steak. You put a hot dog on there. Hot dog is various kinds of meat. Nobody knows what's in it. I will give you that. No one knows what the fuck you're eating when you eat a hot dog. Exactly. (laughs) Nobody knows. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, beef is fair. My number one, which I'm sure is not a surprise to anybody, is uh, a brisket. That's such a weak number one. I actually don't even know what overall type of meat brisket is. I if you if you put a gun to my head and said you have you have to get this right, is brisket beef or is brisket from a pig? I I don't even know. Oh my god! I honestly <laughs> don't even know. Well, I I'm not going to tell you the answer because I want you to do the research. I'm not going to. It is not from a pig. I can tell you that. So it's obviously from a cow. My number one is pork. I think the pig is the pig provides the most delicious types of meat. You've got ham. Ham is good. Pork is good. Bacon is good. I think pig is number one. Now, are you going thick cut bacon or regular cut bacon? Don't even fucking ask me that question. I'm gonna go thick cut. I would go thick cut. Specifically, I'd go maple wood. Maplewood is good. Maplewood thick-cut bacon. What was on your honorable mention for the best kinds of meat? Well, so I, I had I had walleye on there, which is a kind of fish. How does that uh, make any sense to you? I had pork butt on there. <laughs> arguably, pork butt is arguably the funniest name type of meat. I would have to say that. I, I don't know why it's funny, but it's I guess. What do you um, mean it's, you don't know why it's funny? Say pork butt. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> you going to tell me saying pork butt's not funny? <laughs> pork butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. We sound like three-year-olds. Anyways, yeah. um, I also have hot dog on there, and then I also I put on there, uh, um, if I can read my own fucking writing, I, I think that's supposed to say uh, lamb, but I'm not entirely sure. Okay. I really don't have any honorable mentions, man. I don't think that anything even got close. I mean, to me, I like the fact that neither of us even brought up turkey because turkey's not good. Oh, let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, you you have like a traditional American Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Every year. How many times have you ever been like, oh, man, I can't wait to eat the turkey? Nobody likes the turkey. It's a waste. Nobody. No, it's a, I, would, I would do it without the turkey. I think we should get rid of it. I think you should have a ham. Yes. Ham is yes, much uh, better. Oh, ham is disgusting. That's one. That's my worst meat. I hate ham. But you like brisket. That makes no sense. Oh, I forgot. Is not from a pig. <laughs> I keep forgetting that. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to remind you guys really quickly about that contest that we're going to have going on all of this year. The way that it's going to work is we're just going to ask you, what's the dumbest thing that you did this week? And if you end up having the dumbest submission, we're going to reward that stupidity with a gift card. We're going to do at least $10. Depending on what happens, we might even do more than that. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. It's This is our year anniversary episode. And the thing that has consistently always kept us going is just hearing from people. I love hearing the negative comments. They're always funny. They're always well thought out. They always make me laugh. And obviously we like getting the positive ones too because it's just that little bit that kind of keeps you going at times when maybe you feel like, why are we doing this? We hope to keep doing it for a really long time. We hope you guys keep listening. Thank you very much. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.